Amen. If you have your Bible this morning, why don't you go ahead and turn over to the book of Jonah. This is the next in line in our series that's carrying us all the way through the fall. The series in the Minor Prophets, which are a collection of 12 smaller books. That's why they're called minor, not because they're not important, but because they're not 50 chapters long like some of the other prophets. They're typically pretty short. Collection, uh, all of them given to Israel or Israel's neighbors around the time of the exile, either before, during, or just after. We're taking one a week and doing big picture overviews of these books throughout the fall. And, and this week we come to Jonah, and I feel like it's almost a break. I feel like it's a little bit of a breather. It's something finally that makes some sense, at least on the surface of it. You know, Not that the other ones don't make sense, but there's only so many oracles of judgment that you can read before your mind starts to get dulled a little bit to it. At least that's the way my mind works. And we've seen a lot of oracles of judgment. And for many of us, they're oracles of judgment we probably had not read before we read them, getting ready to, to look into, into them in these sermons. Jonah, on the other hand, is one of the most famous passages of Scripture in the Old Testament. It's one of the, one of the first stories we learn when we're kids. We learn about Jonah getting swallowed by a whale. Just the, the whole weirdness of it makes it stick into our minds. And we know the basics of that story. Now, the question is going to be, is our familiarity with Jonah going to be a blessing or a curse to us in our attempt to really get at its message? If there's, anything, if there's any advantage to what we've looked at so far, it's that these things come to us so fresh. These books are just so new to us that even if, even if the over and over references to, to judgment dull us a bit, at least on the whole, the book comes to us fresh. And Jonah, we're going to have to fight through some familiarity. Jonah is... Very different from anything we've looked at so far in the Minor Prophets. So far, all of them have been built around what we've called oracles of judgment. They're speeches, usually given by God, but through the prophet that he ordained to give those speeches. And, and usually the message is pretty bleak. The books that we've looked at so far in Hosea and Joel and Amos and, and even Obadiah, they're almost all speech. And then sometimes at the end, there's a little tack on of some promise of judgment and rest, or of restoration on the other side of judgment. Jonah isn't an oracle at all. I mean, there are some speeches in it, but for the most part, it's almost like a biography of its central character. But it's not the kind of biography that you ever want written about you. It's, it falls in the category of a satire. The point of this biography is to expose Jonah's foolishness to give you an example by contrast to what it looks like to be obedient to God, to, to follow his commands. Jonah is the central character, but not a lovable one, and that's for sure. Even the structure of the story, which has four different chapters, is meant to reflect Jonah's hypocrisy, to point out his foolishness. We're going to get into this in detail later, but just I want to give you a bird's eye view of how the book works first. There's four chapters. The first one introduces us to a story. It gives us Jonah as a character and a command from God to follow. It shows us specifically Jonah disobeying and him deserving death. And yet he's encountered instead by mercy, by God preserving his life. That's chapters 1 and 2. Jonah deserves to die. Jonah is preserved from death. Then Jonah responds with this wonderful prayer of thanksgiving to God. That's, that's the first. Then in chapter 3 and 4, you get the same story, basically, the same elements told in in, um, in a complete contrast to the first half of the book. You get, once again, a people who deserves to die, just like Jonah did. You get Jonah going to Nineveh, telling them that they're going to die if they don't repent. They, in other words, are in the same place that Jonah was after he had disobeyed God. 
And then you get God's grace shown to the Ninevites, just like it was shown to Jonah when God preserved his life. And then you get Jonah's response, just like you have a response to, to him being preserved in chapter 2. But the response to the Ninevites receiving the same mercy that Jonah received is really where the, the, book's, uh, the book's main point comes out clearest. Because when Jonah responds to them getting mercy, the same mercy that he received, he's furious about it. He can't imagine that God would show mercy to his enemies. The book's a satire to show how foolish it is to not see that if God shows mercy to you, he's justified in showing it to others as well. It's a celebration, of course, of the wideness of God's mercy. But even more than that, it's a call to us to embrace that wideness, to not fall into Jonah's camp of only liking it when God's nice to us and not to other people. That's the, that's the basic structure of the book that we're going to pry into today. We want to look at what Jonah, how Jonah receives mercy, then we want to look at how he resents it, and then we want to, to ask the question, what would it look like for us to avoid sharing in Jonah's hypocrisy? That's where we're headed this morning with the book of Jonah. What I want to do is ask you to stand as I read from the first three verses of chapter 1. These set the stage for the entire story that follows. So would you stand with me in honor of God's word as we read from Jonah chapter 1. This is beginning with verse 1, the word of the Lord. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, So he paid the fare and went on board to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. This is God's word. You can be seated. The ironies don't take long to start appearing in this story. When Jonah receives God's call, just like every prophet we've looked at received God's call, he acts just as swiftly as we've seen those other prophets act. But when Hosea was called upon to go and marry a prostitute to show what God's love to Israel looked like and Israel's treatment of him looked like, he, he did it. That was a tall order, and he did it immediately. When Jonah gets the command to go to his enemies and tell them that judgment is coming, he flees in the opposite direction. Assyria, which is where Nineveh, the city of Nineveh, was located, was kind of northeast of Israel. Jonah heads due west to Joppa, right on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, and hops on a ship that's headed to Tarshish. And we don't know what that city was, where it was. There's no record of it that we can find in history, but we can just assume that where it was is unimportant, except for the fact that it was in the opposite direction from Nineveh. Now, Jonah should have grown up knowing, reading things like Psalm 139, maybe even singing that in worship as he attended his, his... wherever his place of worship was growing up. They should have read Psalm 139 and, and remembered its question, where can I flee from the presence of the Lord? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I go into to Hades, you are there. He should have known that. Later on, Jonah identifies himself to the sailors as, as the one who serves the maker of the land and the seas. He should have known the folly of fleeing from the maker of the seas by the sea itself, as if that was possible. But he's not thinking clearly, and we're meant to know it. His action was foolish for a man of his beliefs, for a prophet of the Lord. But he realized his folly way too late. Apparently, his journey started out pretty well. We're told he was asleep. 
I mean, probably hopped on the ship and it, it sailed off and he thought things were going great, so he thought he would catch a nap. He goes down into the hole and, and, and as Jonah is sleeping, I love the way that verse 4 describes God's action. It says God hurled a wind. I mean, he's like a Cy Young Award winning pitcher who just tosses this wind in the boat. All of a sudden the sea just comes alive doing the will of its maker. Jonah, Jonah refused to do its will. The seas would not. The seas come to life to execute God's will. The sailors are helpless. You know, they're tossing cargo overboard. They're crying out to every god whose name they can remember, trying to do anything to cover their bases and get out of this predicament. And then finally somebody wakes Jonah up and asks him, who is your god? Who do you pray to? And that's when they realize. Jonah claims to worship the one who made the sea. They cast lots to be sure. They don't know who's, who's responsible for the predicament they find themselves in. So they, they use some sort of game. We don't really know what it is. It's probably something like dice, some sort of game of chance. And the God who made the seas and hurled the wind onto them is just as in control of that game. And the lot lands on Jonah. They ask him, who are you? What do you do? What's your occupation? And he tells them that he's, he belongs to the God who made the seas and who apparently has made the storm as well. They know at that point that they are stuck. They don't know what to do. They ask Jonah. He says the only way that you're going to get out of this is if you throw me overboard. And they don't want to do that. Apparently these aren't Pirates of the Caribbean style sailors who are willing to maroon anybody just to, to, to survive. And these guys actually seem to have hearts about them. They don't want to kill Jonah. So they try everything. They're rowing as hard as they can to get back to the shore in the storm. They don't get anywhere. So finally they toss him overboard praying that God won't hold them accountable for it. And if this were a normal kind of prophet, normal based on what we've already seen, you can almost see the story ending here. It's a cautionary tale against disobeying God. Jonah's been given a command, he's disobeyed it, now he's dead. But the story doesn't end there. There's a remarkable twist. It gets weirder and more beautiful all at once. We're told that God appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. Now, I have probably oft, most often thought about that whale as part of the judgment. You know, I mean, who wants to end up in a, the belly of a whale for three days? Is that's part of God just trying to get him never to disobey again. But, but actually, Jonah takes it as a measure of God's grace to him. It's a life-preserving vehicle. This whale somehow keeps him alive. We're just told the, the fact simply. Verse 17 just states it. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. It doesn't explain itself. It doesn't say anything about how that's possible, why God chose a fish. We're just left with the fact that he did. Now, chances are, when you hear about Jonah getting swallowed by a fish, you're led either to dismiss the event as impossible, maybe, maybe coming up with another way of explaining it as sort of an allegory or a parable of some sort, or you're really wondering how it's possible. Like you want, you're looking for some sort of scientific explanation for how, how, how a person could really survive in those conditions. And you'd be in good company. I mean, one of the things that I came across when I was reading for today was this encyclopedia, reference to this Encyclopedia Britannica article from like the 19-teens or 20s, where they explain that they investigated reports of people actually being swallowed whole by fish and then regurgitated and still alive. They, they interviewed a couple guys who had experienced this somewhere over in Europe. I think these kind of explanations are beside the point, though. I mean, the point, it seems, in this story, the fact that it's just told to us, that it, it just it isn't interested in those questions. There's nothing about it that suggests those who heard it originally were meant to see it as a normal thing. 
It's not like they were just crazy and could be duped in ways that we can't. This was a, a miraculous event in their eyes, for sure, out of the ordinary. And there are references all, to, all through it to the fact that God is the one who appointed the fish. God preserved Jonah. God told the fish exactly when to spit him out. Divine intervention is all over this story. How it's possible, whether it's possible, those aren't the questions. The point is that God is the maker of the seas and the land, and therefore he controls the wind and the fish just as much as he controls anything else, and he controls whether or not in that moment a person could survive in the belly of a fish. If that's a pill that's too tough for you to swallow, I would just encourage you to turn the question around, to reflect on why you're so sure that there can't be a God who rules over nature to such an extent that he gets to intervene in it without throwing off the whole system. I can be sure there's not a God who's like that. Now, back to the story. Here's the thing you can't miss in this phase of the story. The fish is an instance of God's miraculous mercy to give life to somebody who doesn't deserve it. What Jonah deserved was to die. What he got was a second chance. From the belly of the fish, Jonah shows that's exactly how he takes this, this event. The prayer that he offers in chapter 2 is one of the most beautiful recorded in Scripture, in my opinion. It's all subjective, right? But that's what I'm going with. I think it's one of the most beautiful recovered in, recorded in Scripture. It reads like a psalm. He, tells, he, he prays to the Lord, I, I called out in my distress, verse, one, verse 2, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, the place of the dead, often associated with water in this culture, I cried and you heard my voice. You cast me into the deep. He knows this was God's judgment and he knows God was right to do it. You cast me into the heart of the seas and the flood surrounded me. Verse 3. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head at the roots of the mountains. Isn't this a beautiful way of describing what it must be like to be lost in the depths of a sea that is in a rage that you can't control? To be somehow caught down at the roots of the mountains themselves with no hope of escape? I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet, here's the turning point. You brought up my life from the pit. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came up to you into your holy temple. Jonah concludes his prayer recognizing that this is a proof that those who worship vain idols have no hope, but that those who hope in the steadfast love of the Lord find their hope secure in him. Now, this is clearly a reference to drowning, right? What it must feel like, a poetic way of describing what it must feel like to be on the verge of death by drowning. One of the most horrible ways, surely, to die. But it's not hard to recognize in his imagery what we experience ourselves as the point of despair that prepares us to turn to God in faith. If you've ever experienced any kind of depression, especially if it's connected with you to to some sort of spiritual experience that you've had, a, a conversion or a turning moment, then this is what you felt like, like you were lost in the deep. Like the, like the waves were clo- closing in over you. Like you were bound at the roots of the mountains almost. And you just can't see any way out of it. And from that place, you cry out to the Lord and find him to be sure and strong. That's why Jonah declares salvation belongs to the Lord at the end of his prayer. 
And that's something you've experienced too, if you've known his grace. That's Jonah's experience of God's mercy. That would also be a pretty good place to end this story, wouldn't it? Another example of God's grace. A little taste of what that restoration he's been promising in the other prophets might actually look like on the ground. The story doesn't end there either. God does respond to Jonah's repentance, to Jonah's appreciation of God's mercy. And he orders the fish at the, at the end of chapter 2, verse 10. The Lord spoke to the fish. You really want to start asking some questions. What about that one? How does that work? He spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now the story resets itself. Remember we said that the chapters 1 and 2 and chapters 3 and 4 kind of mirror each other. Same sequence of events, two very different ends. The story hits refresh at the beginning of chapter 3. God comes again to Jonah, we're told. Speaks to him, go now to Nineveh. Speak to that great city, the message that I tell you. And Jonah, this time, gets straight up and goes straight where the Lord told him to. Jonah went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Verse 3 of chapter 3 tells us. So he's a changed man, right? Not exactly. Jonah heads to Nineveh, and he delivers his message of judgment. And chances are, at this point, he's just assuming, or at least hoping, that they aren't going to respond. He, st- he wants the message that he delivers them to come true. He tells them that if, unless they repent in 40 days, they will be judged for their sin. They'll be destroyed. But the most remarkable feature of the story is that they listen to him. I mean, to me, that is no less unexpected or miraculous than Jonah getting preserved in the deep by getting swallowed by a fish. And here's this pagan city, the capital city of one of the, that known world's most powerful empires, full of people who had no context for the God that Jonah was preaching to them. And now all of a sudden, the entire city comes to him in repentance. They hear Jonah's message. It's like, it's like a Jonathan Edwards-style Great Awakening event happening here. Sinners in the hands of an angry God, and, and only, only on a much bigger scale. And we're meant to see it that way. We're meant to see it as, as exceptional. This just doesn't happen. And you would think, at this great response to Jonah's preaching, that that would have been a really good day for him, right? He's a prophet who actually got heard and not killed. That's pretty rare in this time. It's clear that the revival was just as much an act of God's mercy, bringing these pagans who had no context for him directly into repentance. That was just as much an act of God's mercy as was his decision to send them a prophet, to give them a a, a chance to repent. It's just as much an act of mercy as was his decision to save Jonah when Jonah was thrown overboard. Repentance makes it even to the king who calls for some sort of national repentance. He makes it some sort of state policy that everyone is going to cover themselves in this, these ashes and sackcloth and whatever else, and they're going to, to repent in hopes of warding off disaster. It's crazy stuff, and we're meant to take it that way. And this will be another logical place to end the story, right? A happy ending. This will be another great spot. Make it a story about the bigness of God's love, which reaches to Jonah even when he's disobedient and reaches to the Ninevites even though through their paganism they deserve to die. But God's mercy is too big. Ends on revival. But that's not what the story is about. It is about God's mercy. But even more than that, the story is about Jonah's foolish inability to understand God's mercy. 
It's about Jonah's inability to understand God's mercy to him and therefore to understand it as it extends even to his enemies. Chapter 4 opens with this new twist to the story. Remember what we said at the beginning. The way the story works is that it's a mirror image of itself. Chapters 1 and 2, same sequence of of events happen. Jonah disobeys. He deserves to die. He's judged, but then he's delivered, and he responds with thanksgiving for that deliverance. Resets itself. Chapter 3, we get another people who deserve to die. We get the Ninevites. We get God acting in mercy to them, just like he did to Jonah. And then we get Jonah responding to it. Chapter 4 is Jonah's response, and it is radically different than the prayer that he prayed in chapter 2. This is Jonah's I told you so moment. Look at chapter 4. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Here Jonah is, ridiculous Jonah, quoting God's own words about himself back to God as a justification for his decision to disobey at the beginning. He would rather not live than live in a world where God can show mercy to these people. How, ultimately, did Jonah know that God would act in mercy? How did he know that God was compassionate and loving? Is it not from Israel's own experience of disobeying God time and again and being forgiven for it? Was it not his own experience just now, just in the story, just before this point, where he is disobedient to God but preserved from death through the mercy of God? Jonah knows that God is like this because God has been like this to him. But he doesn't want to live in a world where God gets to be merciful to his enemies. God's response to Jonah, I think, is brilliant. The rest of the chapter is God asking questions, really rhetorical ones, to Jonah to tease out how foolish he is. God asks him, do you do well to be angry? Of course, Jonah thinks that he is. Angry enough to die, he'll say later. To show his foolishness, to expose how wrong his response is, God plans something of a visual aid. Jonah runs out of the city. He's going he's gonna to sit up on some sort of hill overlooking it and wait for the action to happen. He's hoping that maybe that repentance had not really been genuine and God would still judge them. So he sets up some sort of shelter, but his shelter has no roof and it's really hot and uncomfortable. And so God causes a vine to grow, some sort of fast-growing vine, I guess, some gourd of some sort. It grows up overnight and covers Jonah's structure. So he has a nice shade and he's happy all of a sudden. His mood is swung dramatically and now all is well with the world as he waits on Nineveh to get destroyed. But then God sends a worm. The worm eats itself into the vine and it dies overnight. As quickly as it came up, now it's gone. And Jonah's response is everything about how Jonah looks at the world. It's all about how it relates to him and his, his needs. God comes to him again with basically the same question. Do you do well to be angry? Did you grow this vine? It came up overnight. And you would not want me to show compassion to a city full of people that I formed in my own image. And yet you're showing compassion and regret over a vine that you didn't make, that came up overnight and went as quickly as it came. That's the main point of the vine analogy. 
Now, I'll give it to you. That, the, the, the end of the chapter is one of the great anticlimaxes in Scripture, right? Do you do well to, to, to whine about this vine when, when, and not be concerned over 120,000 people and also much cattle? Nobody else coughed that? Lots of cows. I think the point is that these cattle, even these cattle are more important than this vine that your heart is broken over. And yet you have no remorse at the thought that 120,000 persons are going to get wiped out. That's part of the point of the vine analogy. But I think there's another layer too. Jonah, in his resistance to see the Ninevites receive mercy, is implicitly acting like he deserved the mercy that he received. But he didn't deserve the mercy that he received any more than he deserved a plant that he didn't grow and that he couldn't keep alive. The point is it exposes how faulty Jonah's own view of himself is and what he has by right. What he has by right is a death wrapped in weeds at the roots of the mountains, like he described in his own prayer. That's not what he received. And in this book, in its conclusion, we get a lesson about what it looks like to live as those who have personally encountered God's mercy. The point is that it should, it should affect the way we see other people, the way that we look to see them encountered by God's mercy, and the way that we treat them ourselves as those who have received mercy. The story is basically a warning against the folly of underestimating God's mercy. And I think that the underestimation, it's, it, I think what it's catching on to in Jonah is a two-layered problem. If we're going to avoid Jonah's hypocrisy, we've got to understand both layers. Layer number one is that Jonah couldn't understand God's love for his enemies. Jonah could not understand why God loved them. Layer number two to his mistaken, to his underestimation of God's mercy is that he couldn't understand why God would love his enemies because he didn't fully understand God's love towards him, the depths of God's mercy towards him. And I think if we're going to avoid Jonah's mistakes, we've got to target both layers in ourselves. Let me, let me say more about this. Two questions I think we've got to ask ourselves. If we're going to avoid Jonah's hypocrisy, we've got to attack both layers, and we've got to do it through two main questions. First, does your life reflect God's concern for the salvation of all nations? Does your life reflect God's concern for the salvation of all nations? In other words, does, does your desire for God's mercy go as far as God's mercy? Does it extend as wide as God's mercy itself? God has always shown himself concerned for all those who are made in his image, even though for much of the history of the Bible and its story... His attention was focused mostly on Israel. If you remember back to the founding of Israel, what did he tell Abraham? He said, I'm going to make you a great nation, and through you, the nations of the world are going to be blessed. Even, even in forming and caring for Israel distinctly, God had the nations of the world in mind. Of course, that theme gets developed here in Jonah especially. The prophets echo the call. Jonah's one of the most clear on that front. But we see it best in the New Testament. God's plans for the world become so much clearer after Jesus with the fact that this gospel is going to extend not just to the Jews, not just to Israel, but also to the Gentiles. 
And in Acts, the first story that we get of the gospel coming in power to the Gentiles is that famous story of Peter, who receives a vision of this sheet full of unclean animals coming down, and he's told to eat from it. And in that, he sees the symbolism that he's to extend what he had received to those who didn't share his rituals. Do you remember where Peter received his vision? He received it at Joppa. God's offering a choice. I think, there's a, I think we're supposed to see these two stories as connected. At Joppa, Jonah decided that the gospel wasn't to go to anyone besides him and his people. At Joppa, Peter recognizes in light of Jesus that it goes as far as God sends it, and that's to the ends of the earth. Now, the question to us is, are we going to be like Peter or like Jonah? Could be that there is. It could be that our tendency towards Jonah's sin. Uh, we share that to some extent because of the fact that we've been attacked, for instance, by countries that are predominantly of a certain religion. That the Islamic world, maybe we're, 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 we tend to see them as some sort of threat, and we and we, we want vengeance for for those who have been killed, and and that could keep us from wanting to see the gospel go to them. That's possible. If that's true where you are, if that's how you think of any people as not worthy of the gospel, then Jonah calls you to repentance for that sin. But my sense is that's not where our group is going to struggle. I think a, way, a better way to understand if your life reflects God's concern for the nations is not do you resent any of them coming to faith, but, but do, does seeing them come to faith have any place in your priorities? What of your interest level and missions? Does, does your interest level reflect God's interest? Does the way that you choose to spend your money reflect God's interest in seeing the nations come to know him? Does the way that you choose to spend your time or maybe even give your life reflect God's concern to see the gospel go to the ends of the earth? That's the point of, jo- of Jonah is that here's a guy who couldn't see that happen. He wasn't willing to, to see that happen when called. We probably are not going to fail in the way he did because we don't like the people that, we, that may end up getting the gospel. But we could fail just the same through apathy. Does your life reflect God's concern for the salvation of all nations? That's layer number one. We can't afford to underestimate God's mercy. We might know that we're doing that by not being concerned to see it go as far as God wants to see it go. My sense is, though, that our biggest struggle, our biggest error or tendency towards self-deception comes at that second layer. What we're saying is that Jonah, big picture, didn't want to see the gospel or didn't want to see God's grace or mercy go to his enemies. But we're also saying that one of the main reasons is that he did not fully understand how far God's mercy had extended to him. He lost touch of how badly he needed the same mercy that God was now extending to the Ninevites. And that that's where his, his, his animosity was rooted. And I also think that's where we're most susceptible. And here's the question. To avoid Jonah's hypocrisy on layer number two, to avoid missing how far God's mercy has extended to you, does your treatment of others reflect God's treatment of you? It's that simple. Does your treatment of others reflect God's treatment of you? Does your life look like you've experienced God's mercy? Jonah, obviously, he thought it was great when God showed mercy to him, but he hated it when God showed mercy to others. 
That's what makes him a hypocrite. That's what makes him inconsistent with himself. Now, I'm guessing that our hypocrisy on this front doesn't look exactly like Jonah's. That is, we, we don't, I don't know that we ever consciously think. Maybe some of you do. I don't know. I'm guessing we don't ever consciously think that we wish God wouldn't save that person. We don't ever think, okay, that person doesn't deserve God's mercy. That thought may not ever come into your head that clearly. But I think we show that we think this deep down through several telltale signs. That we actually think it deep down. Let me just really hammer on one. Do you have trouble forgiving other people? Do you find yourself resenting people who have done you wrong? Are you vindictive? Would you rather gossip about them than see it brought to resolution? If you have trouble letting go of wrongs others have done to you, I think what it shows is that you think you deserve better. Right? You think you deserve better. Ultimately, what the gospel teaches us is that our sins are so severe, the weight of them so great, that the only possible solution to it was for God himself to come into this world and to take them on his own back on the cross. That's an extension of mercy that's greater than anything Jonah could have even realized. That is a manifestation of what God is like that is so much more vivid and clear than anything that the Old Testament had to offer. But just as clear as a a manifestation of God's mercy that is, it's, it's also at the same time an even more clear statement about how bad we are, about how, how serious our sin is. If you connect with the seriousness of your sin, with what you actually deserve, then it cuts the legs out from under any right that you have to insist on being treated well by other people. Jesus illustrates this for us better than anyone else could. I love the parable of the talents. Remember that one? Jesus tells his hearers the story of a, of a man who owed 10,000 talents to a king. Uh, that, was a, that was an amount that was like a lifetime of earnings, if not more, for most people. It was, an, it was an amount that he could not possibly pay back. And the king forgives him. He could kill him. He owned his life at that point. What that man deserved was not to live anymore. And the king wiped it away. But then he goes out and he runs into some guy who owes him, I don't remember the exact amount, maybe a talent, I don't know, some small amount. The man can't pay on the spot, and what does this guy do? He he has him beaten and thrown into prison until he can pay. The point of the story is, is crystal clear. What we owe to God is so much greater than anything anyone else could owe to us, that to treat them as if they have to They have to make right with us before we'll show them mercy. Is to treat them as if they deserve worse than you do. That's that's what's implied. And if, insofar as we fall guilty there, we show that we're committing the same error, the same hypocrisy that Jonah did. We show through our lives, when rubber meets the road, that we ultimately don't think we need to be saved as bad as those people need to be saved. It's one of the reasons when we do, we just did another, the latest episode of our new members class last weekend. It had me thinking about this. It was one of the reasons that in that class I always promise people that you are going to get your feelings hurt if you decide to commit to our church. People are going to do you wrong. 
We're a church full of sinners, and that's the way it works when you get to know each other well, and you're not perfect. So one of the things we promise to each other is that we're going to be slow to take offense, and we're going to be quick to seek reconciliation. It's language taken straight out of the New Testament. But it's full of, of meaning, and it's a, it's, it's a message directly connected to this one. We promise to be slow to offense and quick to reconciliation because we think there is no sin anyone can commit against us that even holds a candle to what we deserve because of what we've done to God. And yet God has sacrificed himself to make that right. That's the call of Jonah, ultimately. It's a call to share God's mercy and to live as those who have experienced his mercy. So do you? Is that what your life looks like? That's the question. Will you pray with me? Father, it is so easy for us to see the world only through the lens of what our interests tell us is right and wrong. We see everyone and everything only in how it bears on us and what what we want and what we think we deserve. That's so natural to us. Would you please, through the power of your spirit and through the inspiration that comes from experiencing the gospel, would you break that in us? Would you protect us from sharing in Jonah's hypocrisy by a vivid memory of what it's like to be at the depths of despair and be rescued there by your mercy? And with a vivid sense of what it's like to be rescued by your mercy, would you send us out to extend that mercy to others? That is a tall order, and it's bigger than us. And so we turn it over to you with a humble rest in the power of your spirit to make it happen. We pray this to you in Jesus' name. Amen.